This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Today we have Dr. John Nightingale from the Vancouver Aquarium, and he's going to talk about, among other things, cetaceans in captivity. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to come talk to you, and it's the first Sunday day on a Sunday in like, no, it's not two years, but it seems like it. So thanks for the opportunity. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the aquarium first. So as the, as the graphic says, the Vancouver Aquarium, I mean, you, you hear lots of things, lots of uh, divergent, um, divergent information, uh, but it's not an opinion. The Aquarium is a nonprofit, a self-sustaining nonprofit uh, society with uh, about 77,000 members in 27,000 uh, households around, of which 1,500 are memberships from outside Canada. Well, that's interesting. Okay, we're going to go to the next one and then come back. The board of the aquarium, the aquarium came to be when a group of downtown, a downtown businessman who was an insurance broker, whose son got him interested in tropical fish when his son was in, I don't know, elementary school or junior high school, and got him hooked on the idea, and uh, so they thought, he, he thought, Vancouver needed an aquarium. Good, big cities, important cities in North America, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, all had aquariums. He thought Vancouver needed one. So he gathered up some researchers from UBC. There was no SFU then. Uh, the superintendent of schools, the director of uh, Vancouver tourism of the day, uh, the mayor, and they formed an association. And they did something really unusual for a a fledgling cultural institution. They gave it the first four very clear mandates. And I say unusual because most art galleries get born out of a private art collection that gets given. A lot of symphonies got started 80 or 100 years ago by a group of people who liked music. This was actually invented as a cultural institution uh, purposefully to play a major role in education. Well, the superintendent of schools was one of the board members. Helped make Vancouver more attractive, and that was both, we think, uh, contribute to tourism, but also contribute to the image and the stature of the city. Um, operate in a financially self-sufficient manner. That was the most unusual mandate, um, and to this day, the aquarium is still the only large cultural institution in the country that operates without subsidy, uh, taxpayer dollars from any level of government. Conduct original research? You bet. There were some UBC professors on that board, and they wanted a research facility with running salt water, because there wasn't one anywhere in the Lower Mainland. Nobody talked about conservation in 1950. Um, That really came along sort of in the late 60s with Rachel Carson and the publication of the book Silent Spring and the awareness of DDT. The first Earth Day in 1970, I remember as as an undergraduate university student. 
So the aquarium opened, and the capital, the initial capital money, came from all three levels of government. Each level of government put in $100,000, and the aquarium was built. Opening day saw 10,000 people show up, an astonishing number. And the joke is that the aquarium's amazing volunteer program was born that night because the three staff staggered home after dealing with 10,000 people and recruited husbands, wives, kids, neighbors, and friends, and the volunteer program that runs to this day was born. So today, um, th this is the new entrance to the aquarium that opened as part of the first phase of a physical revitalization program, opened in 2014. There are over 50,000 individual animals, not counting bacteria and viruses and that sort of thing, uh, at the aquarium. It runs a, a very rich mixture of education programs. Uh, it has direct outreach programs across the country, and I'll talk about those in a minute. Of course, the Marine Mammal Rescue Center. Uh, uh, we launched a, a coastal, something called the Coastal Ocean Research Institute in 2014, and all in, there are about 500 employees and about uh, 1,300 volunteers who last year put in 110,000 hours of time doing everything from teaching kids to helping take care of the animals to going on the road with a, the with a classroom in a truck as it drives around BC. Last December 30th, we, we welcomed our 1.17 uh, millionth visitor so a couple of grandparents who were quite surprised that they ended up being the 1.17th million visitor. That was a, a record attendance for the third year in a row. So the aquarium opened in 1956, so last June 15th was its 60th birthday, and one of the things that we did was collect up a lot of history, a kind of a complete historical package, not just of the development of the physical facility, but the people who'd been involved. Uh, whether they, they're volunteers, staff, donors, all of that got packaged up into a nice, neat block, and, one, and part of it went off to the Vancouver Archives so that, that uh, there's a, an accurate record. But in 60 years, I now talk to people my age who were kids in hand on opening day. And I, an amazing number of people seem to remember being there that first weekend. Um, and, of course, the it was a lot smaller than it is today. In, the other thing that's happened, though, in 60 years is that the ocean isn't necessarily a better place for all the life that lives there. There's increasing uh, pressures, and you don't even need to have a debate about whether it's all natural or all human caused. The only, thing, the only species that can do something about it are humans. And so in terms of the four major problems facing the ocean today, the biggest right now is overfishing. So 90% of all fish in the ocean, bigger than me, are gone. Bluefin tuna, whale sharks uh, are just gone, overfished. And we've caught about 48 of the 50 major fisheries in the world are either at capacity or over capacity. So we're basically taking so much out of the ocean People say to me, well, when are the cod coming back on the East Coast? The answer is not in a thousand years, because we took so many cod out that the, the gears of the ecosystem changed. And the space in the ecosystem that cod used to occupy from 
when they were eggs, larvae, growing up uh, to, to being fairly large major predators, um, had been taken by other species. So one thing that's moved into the East Coast is a gazillion jellyfish. Well, jellyfish are not voracious. They're not like a shark. They're not a direct, a, a voracious hunter. They kind of just drift around hoovering up the plankton. But there's so many of them, they, they basically vacuum clean vast stretches of the ocean of plankton. And unfortunately, cod are plankton when they're babies. So the aquarium's whole mission in life, right from that very first day, was to try and effect the conservation of aquatic life. And we reasoned there are several ways you can do that. Certainly, you can do research. And the aquarium does, and I'll talk about that just a little bit in a second. The idea of, in, of educating people was a founding mandate, and clearly that's important. And you know, fifth grade students in 1956 are uh, are now well into their into their uh, approaching 70 years old. So it's had a multi generational impact on the community. But about 15 years ago, our aha moment was that our biggest asset isn't the aquarium in Stanley Park and it isn't the animals that people come see, it's our audience. Because if indeed it's humans that have to do something about the future of the oceans, uh, our audience are all humans. And so that led to a fundamental uh, refocusing of the aquarium activities around what we call public engagement. The idea that we'd like to Every visitor uh, who comes in person, every student who contacts one of our education programs, whether it's in the aquarium or across the country, and everybody we interact with in the digital universe. We'd like to light that little flicker of interest and curiosity and fan it a bit. Because there are all things that we can do to help ensure that my great-grandchildren and yours have a, a nature to live in and work with that's that's not any worse than it is today. And there are things that we can do without wrecking the economy or turning our lives upside down um, that once we know about them, we think, we think, oh, okay, I can do that. That's pretty easy. And I'll, I'll talk about a couple of those as we go forward. Education, as I said, it's a major thrust. We've seen about 3 million students in 60 years. We will see three million students in the next five years. And that's because the education programs are rapidly growing and going across the country. There is curriculum now, Vancouver Aquarium developed curriculum, often in partnership with UBC, but sometimes the University of Alberta, that's in schools in every territory and province in the country. And our classroom in a truck called Aquavan, which I don't think I have a picture of, um, has been roaming around BC for the last uh, 20 years. Aquavan number two left yesterday for Halifax. So as part of celebrating Canada's 150th birthday, this great big low boy trailer is taking living animals from Vancouver to Halifax and back over the next two years, stopping in little communities all across the country that don't have the chance to come to someplace like the Vancouver Aquarium or the Toronto Aquarium. So taking, taking living animals and education to those students. About 50,000 students a year right now go through a formal curriculum program, and about 50,000 more, a little less than 50,000 more, come to the aquarium 
and their, their teachers have developed, uh, we call it a self-guided program. Our, our staff don't teach the program, the teachers do. Uh, almost 2,000 kids now in spring break and summer camps, um, and those are hands-on experiential learning camps that are week-long and rapidly becoming a favorite place for Vancouver parents to send, send their kids during the summer. Sustainable seafood is, is long been a focus of the aquarium. And I mentioned overfishing being the single biggest problem facing the earth right now. So 15 years ago, we launched a program called OceanWise to help people who were interested in being part of the solution when it comes to overfishing. Um, you know, what do we do if we, if, we're, if we understand overfishing's a problem, what can we do? Well, the answer was, it was ocean-wise. So most grocery stores, most restaurants, now over 5,000 food outlets across the country are ocean-wise, and they will mark on their menu or in their display case fish that's sustainable. So when you buy that, you know you're not part of the problem of overfishing, you're actually part of the solution. The interesting thing was the program wasn't intended to be the seafood police in the sense of a certification. It was intended to move the marketplace. So now across the country we've got 45% unaided um, name recognition of sustainable seafood and ocean-wise. So it's rapidly becoming like Kleenex. We, call, you know, we all call facial tissue Kleenex even though most of it isn't that brand. Same with, uh, same with ocean-wise. 20 years ago, when we started down this road of getting people engaged, people would say to us, I understand that we humans are putting pressure on the marine environment, what can we do? And they didn't just want to write a letter to their MP, or they didn't just want to make a donation. People want to go out and actually do something. And so that launched the great Canadian shoreline cleanup. Now in its 25th year, in every territory and province, with about 80,000 people turning out last year to help clean up shorelines, not just the ocean, but streams, lakes, rivers, and ponds across the country. And it's now tied to a complete set of school curriculums. It's embedded in the, in this, this Girl and Boy Scouts, in, in, the, uh, in, in various community clubs across the province, and it operates as a full collaboration. So while we provide the sort of administrative structure, if you're in Nova Scotia, it's Clean Nova Scotia that turns out 20,000 people to help clean up the shoreline of Nova Scotia. Well, what happens? I mean, you know, stuff gets thrown off boats, stuff washes into the water. So if you go back to 1950, um, we only had basically two kinds of plastics in 1950, when the aquarium was born in 56. And they were both hard plastics, and they were pretty simple. One was Bakelite. You might remember the old telephones used to be made out of Bakelite. They weighed a ton. And now we have maybe 3,000 kinds of plastics, and they're in every part of our life. They're in plastic bags. Your newspaper comes in one. Uh, we use them all, you know, the lids to the coffee cups. So about 30 million tons of plastic are disposed of uh, improperly each year. In other words, not recycled. Eight million tons goes into the oceans. And often it goes into something like the Fraser River and washes into the ocean. 
Canada is pristine clean compared to Southeast Asia. If you've been to any of the cities in Southeast Asia, it's just, you're shocked if you come from British Columbia in terms of the debris that goes into the environment in the ocean. So for 58 years, the aquarium has been, had its first formally dedicated scientist to do research, was hired 58 years ago, but working with other scientists, UBC, SFU, Fisheries and Oceans, University of Washington, uh, there's been research going on either in the aquarium or through the aquarium or with the aquarium. Some of the research is on animals and issues in the aquarium. Most of it's out in the wild. That's where we need to know what's happening to the ecosystems and to the animals. So we've learned, for instance, this is a, a young woman doing her PhD uh, when we had a, a, a beluga calf. She discovered that mothers and calves have, have a bonding, a vocal bonding. So if you think about belugas for a minute, they live where it's pitch black half the year, or the sun doesn't rise, and parts of their environment freeze solid. So the ones who migrate have to migrate to avoid the ice. So they, so they live in and around ice or under ice and in the dark half the year. So they communicate acoustically. And so the calf will say, mom, and mom will say, calf. And the analogy she uses, it's not unlike a playground. If you go out to a noisy playground, you can be sitting right on the bench with somebody and their child will say, mom, you don't even hear it, but the mom does. Or the mom may yell, Jenny, and the, that Jenny raises her head up to look around. So we, we humans have that same kind of a contact call, but we also have the ability to use our eyesight uh, when we need to, and they don't. That study, that, that discovery, was, was ground truthed in the high Arctic three and two years ago, and then starting last summer is being applied in the St. Lawrence. Because the beluga whales in the St. Lawrence have gone from a historic high of about 12,000 to about 1,500 10 years ago when all hunting, both by Aboriginal people and, and anybody else, was stopped. It's now down to 800. And one of the questions is, well, is the shipping traffic making so much noise, you know, maybe at night, um, making so much noise that the mom and calf get too far apart and can't hear each other? and then can't find each other. So that research project is just really gearing up, but it had its base on the research that discovered this contact call in the aquarium. In 2014, I mentioned we started the Coastal Ocean Research Institute. So BC has a huge coastline, 37,000 kilometers long. If we were a country, we'd have the eighth longest coastline in the world all by ourselves after Norway and ahead of the Philippines. So it's huge. And Canada's a giant country with a pretty small population base and a pretty small tax base. And there never has been enough government scientists to, to monitor and do research like we probably all would like to see done uh, on our coastline. But we, in 2012, 2013, each year there were about 200 scientists doing something out in the marine environment. They might be from universities, they might have been from fisheries and oceans, some of them were private uh, environmental firms doing uh, environmental assessment work for oil and gas terminals or whatever, 
There's a ton of work going on, but the problem is they'll take their data home with them. SFU scientists take it to the hill, UBC scientists take it to the point. We're not sure what DFO scientists did with it. So we founded the institute to kind of use our position as Switzerland in the middle to aggregate that information so that we could produce an annual index that says, are things getting better or are things getting worse? Is the curve going downhill or going uphill? And of course, what we discovered is you can't do that, just one of them for BC, because we are such a big place, and there will eventually be four indexes, one for the North Coast Rupert area, one for the Strait of Georgia, one for the outside of Vancouver Island, and then a composite index for all of BC. That's the first in Canada that anybody's tried anything like that. And it's being done in full partnership with uh, universities and the government. Um, and of course, you don't want all the data in the world because you drowned in it. You only want data that if this is true, then this is true, and this is true, that you can correlate the, the information and tell are things getting better or getting worse. One interesting program um, that the aquarium has run now for 20 years um, helped, helped invent the term citizen science. This is a program called the BC Cetaceans, cetaceans being whales, dolphins, and porpoises, the BC Cetacean Sightings Network. So there are about 5,000 people now on the coast who participate. They may be a homeowner, they may be a ship captain, they may just be a boater, they live on the coast. When they see whales and dolphins, they report it. It used to be they filled out a log sheet and mailed it in. Now it's all done on an app. You can get out your smartphone and take a picture. Your smartphone's connected to the GPS. It'll remember where it was. And when you get back into cell phone contact, it'll automatically send it to, to the database. So there are a couple of hundred thousand sightings now over 20 years. So when when the government is thinking about, well, should we have oil tankers going in and out of Kitimat, one of the first places they called was, was this program to say, what does the data show? Are there big patches of whales that live right in the middle of the shipping lanes? The answer is yes, but you probably can get around them with, with vectoring ships on a different course. So that program now uh, operates, um, it, it's well installed on the BC coast, um, but we're now going to take it to the Arctic, to some of the Arctic communities. So one of the problems the Arctic communities have is that the graduation rates in the 26 high schools in Nunavut is 12.5% K, K to graduation. Even worse is that it skewed 13 to 1 girls to boys. So the dropouts are mostly the young men. Well, in Inuit society, the, the men were the providers, the hunters. The women kept the home. So what happens now is the girls who finished high school, some of them, they, they get the jobs as accountants, they go get a, some higher education. It's turning society upside down. So the education system of sitting in a classroom six hours a day, five days a week, isn't working for young, growing Inuit boys. Their grandfathers are saying, oh, forget school. Come out with me and learn how to hunt. That's what you need to do. So. This program, transplanted to the Arctic and embedded in each high school, is now taking hold as a way of, of, of giving those kids something productive to do. First, it gets them out of the classroom for an hour every day with a purpose 
to go scan the environment. They process, keep and process the data, so they're learning arithmetic or mathematics with a reason, not just because their teacher said, you have to learn what nine times nine is. There, there's a reason behind it. And so, particularly with, with education in, the, in our Aboriginal communities in BC and in the Arctic, the move is to make it more experiential and give it more purpose so that kids, kids can fight through that urge to take the easy way out and not ah, skip school and go hunt with granddad. This is an interesting picture because it's, um, it's a research project we started four years ago and it was all over television. This was the first use of drones to actually do science. And so these are the endangered southern resident killer whales. And in using the drones, the scientists discovered a couple of things. For the first time, you can tell what whale's pregnant. Because you can't see a baby bump on a killer whale from the side. But when you look straight down, you can see a, you can see a baby bump. So for the first time, we're going to be able to, to document the success rate of births. Because we'll, we see them pregnant, and then if we don't see the calves, we know the calf didn't survive. We think less than 50% of the babies do survive. So it's important data to have. The other thing it shows is which whales are, are healthy, meaning nice and plump, and which ones are skinny. So when they get skinny, the first part, the place they lose weight, us it would be our shoulders and the back of our neck. And they get, a, a, they call it pinhead. The head gets much more pointed. Um, and we're not very far from the point where doing this survey three or four times a summer can help DFO regulate the salmon fisheries, the sport salmon fisheries, because these whales eat Chinook. King salmon. That's what they like. That's by far and away the majority of their diet. And, and of course, Chinook salmon levels in BC, as any of you, if you're fishermen, know, but it's not as easy to go out and just throw a line in the water and catch a king as it used to be. Um, and so that balance between our human desire to do something we always have done, go fishing, and leaving fish for the whales, we haven't had any data. It's just been a kind of a rhetorical argument. Well, that's changing now. The real, one of the real focuses of our research now it, are plastics. And you talked about the shoreline cleanup picking up big debris, and you've all seen pictures probably of the garbage patch of plastic floating, you know, an island the size of Texas floating around out in the middle of the Pacific. That's important. This is more important. Microplastics, at the more work we do, and the Vancouver Aquarium, the Coastal Ocean Research Institute, is a global leader in microplastic research. If we go out and sample between here and Victoria, one cubic meter of water, 6,000 microplastic particles. So we just did the first surveys ever done in the Arctic last summer and about 1,500 particles. And there, there's no marine debris in the Arctic because there are almost no people. So why this is important is that, is that it, it gets ingested by the plankton. So you know, we, we in BC are worried about our salmon runs because they're, they're yo-yoing more than they used to, and there aren't as many of them. We think one reason is that the plankton they're eating aren't as nutritious, and that's because the plankton stomachs have some plastic, which displaces the regular food they eat. So they're, they can still stay alive in most cases, but in some cases maybe not,
um, that plastic, it, it would be like if your stomach was half full of plastic, you could only absorb half the food that you eat. So this is a, a, an emerging hot topic in uh, marine science, and you'll hear a lot more about it. The aquarium continues to focus on, on Canada's Arctic. Um, it has had an Arctic program for over 35 years, and it's uh, displayed beluga whales and Arctic species for 49 years. Uh, and that includes research in the Arctic, things like plastic, and it includes educational programs like the Inuit program I mentioned. We're going to continue with an Arctic program no matter what, no matter what the park board decides, because we are the largest single gateway for the general public to the Arctic and to what's going on uh, in Canada, and one of the biggest in the world. So uh, come to our digital focus in a minute, but Canada's Arctic is changing faster than almost any place on Earth right now with, with the changing climate. Uh, we, take a, we take a group traveling every year, and last year we, we took them from the Canadian north to Greenland, so through the Northwest Passage and to Greenland. For the first time in 30 years, not one square inch of sea ice in the middle of August. We searched high and low. We went up McClintock Channel, the, the ice that sunk the Franklin ships, looking for ice to show our visitors what sea ice looks like. We saw a couple of icebergs that had fallen off glaciers, but in terms of any remnant sea ice, there wasn't any. My grandmother could have sailed a boat from England to Japan right through the Northwest Passage last summer. It was, it was barrierless. As you've probably heard, as we've talked in the community about the, uh, about the whole whale issue, we operate Canada's only marine animal rescue center. And so this is a harbor porpoise uh, named Levi. This is a, a male harbor porpoise who was an adult when he stranded, washed up on the beach. On Salt Spring Island, they, people did what they should have done. They called Fisheries and Oceans. Fisheries and Oceans called us. Uh, we went and rescued it, and, uh, and it lived. And there, I'll show you a picture. I'll show you the next picture. This is Levi going back after being... Uh, rehabilitated. Turned out Levi was full of worms from whatever lifestyle he'd been leading. So just like if you have a dog with worms or a cat, you take it to the vet, the vet will kind of clean it out. That's what the vets did with Levi. Um, the yellow thing he's wearing is, a, is a, a tag that talks to a satellite. So we followed him for the first two months after he was re-released into the environment. He was re-released right about where he stranded south end of Salt Spring Island, and when the batteries went on the satellite transmitter, he was on the Sunshine Coast. So harbor porpoise are a little animal. They're gray. They're four or five feet long at the biggest. They don't jump out of the water like killer whales or white-sided dolphins. You could be on a ferry and active pass in the middle of a group of a thousand of them, and most 99% of the people aren't even going to see them because they just quietly roll up and take a breath and roll down never jump, they never flap their tail, um, so they're, they're almost invisible, but they're one of the key species of marine mammals in D.C. In December, we opened a new hospital at the rescue center, which is amazing because always the, the vets had had to work, we called it the Rona Hospital, had to work in a converted garden shed, 
So they got a proper hospital. It was entirely, the half a million dollars was entirely paid for by community donations uh, to help, help sustain the rescue center. The program also operates in the field. This big brown thing here is a male stellar sea lion, weighs about a thousand pounds, and he has a plastic strapping that you find on cardboard cartons around his neck. And just like, you know, if you remember when you were a kid, people told you not to put wire around trees, or same thing happens if you put plastic strapping around the neck of a sea lion. So our medical team, over the years of taking care of sea lions in the aquarium, worked out an anesthetic because the wisdom, the, the folk wisdom was you couldn't anesthetize a sea lion. It was too risky. How do you get the dosage right? And so they invented an anesthetic that is reversible. So you don't just give it and then wait for them to wake up. You give them an anesthetic that works really quickly, and then you give them the reverser, and they come back out in about a minute. And the reason is that you don't want them to drown. Rescuing them and having them drown wouldn't be a really good outcome. So they have to sneak up on them and dart them with an anesthetic dart, cut the strapping off. Sometimes they have to suture up the wounds, um, put anesthetic, uh, antiseptic on it, and, then, um, and uh, then give it the reversing agent, and they come too. So every month, year-round, the vet team goes out with fisheries and oceans to some part of our coast and goes through the, the sea lion populations, cutting plastic off of them. The, the rescue program operates 95% with volunteers. So that's a little harbor porpoise, a baby, that was probably two weeks old when it was found washed up on the beach. The survival odds of an animal like that living are less than 10%. But against all odds, this one did make it. Um, but it took 13,000 hours of volunteer time. Walking, she couldn't swim. So the engineers made her this kind of water wings, and volunteers walked her in the water 24 hours a day, seven days a week for, for two and a half months until she was strong enough to swim. This is Helen, a Pacific white-sided dolphin that was sent to us from by the Japanese government. You can see the front flippers have been torn off in a fishing net, um, and it's because of the aquarium's expertise in, in working with stranded animals and being able to provide a long-term home. Sea otters, same thing. Uh, there's a whole raft of stranded sea otters. Uh, happened over the last two years in Alaska. They get taken to the Alaska Sea Life Center in Seward. They can only hold a couple of three otters, and they've had a dozen. So we have taken some of their otters uh, for, for permanent home. They remain the they're U.S. otters. They remain the property of the U.S. government. Uh, but they have got no place to put them. So they now are parceling them out to us to, uh, to hold and take care of. This is the Helen on the right, who despite having no, no front flippers, um, retains most of her athleticism. On the left is Chester. So Chester is a false killer whale who was rescued two years ago on Chesterman Beach in Tofino, hence the name. Should never have been in BC. We don't have false killer whales in BC. Their, their range stops about the middle of Oregon. But that was the year we had the giant blob of warm water off the coast, and 
That's how he got to Chesterman Beach. So he's on the beach, no, no uh, false killer whales to be seen anywhere. DFO was called, uh, and so the team went and, and rescued him. So this is an animal that without, without both the rescue center and then without having the aquarium as a long-term home. So the problem with putting Chester back in nature is that he has no life skills. He had no mum to teach him those great big black and white things called killer whales, they want to eat you. Don't go near them. And where do you go to find food? And when do you migrate? Where do you migrate? How do you know that? All the things that animals learn uh, who have parental care, uh, like, like whales and dolphins do, have to go through that learning curve, much like people. And so he has no life skills, and he'll remain in, in our care or somebody's care for the rest of his life. Other species at the aquarium, I'm not sure why I'm showing you a penguin if we're talking about whales. Um, well, these are, these are African penguins. This species is, is quite endangered. If you've ever been to Cape Town, you've gone down uh, south of Cape Town, there's a very famous area called the Boulders. People go look at them. Very small geographical area where they live, more and more impacted by people, and great white sharks. So that's the other thing people go there for, is to dive with great white sharks. Which is, other people can do that. <laughs> I, li I like my arms and legs. But, uh, so this is part of a global rescue effort of about 10 aquariums around the world uh, working to keep uh, black-footed or African penguins, keep the population going. And the South African government is, is is working on actually tearing down some houses and beachfront developments south of Cape Town to expand uh, the boulders area uh, again uh, to provide a more sustainable uh, area for penguins. So I've just highlighted a, a few of the kind of programs and efforts uh, that the aquarium is involved in. Um, we're, never mind the park board, we're coming up to a fairly major change in June. So we've been on a process the last four years of some fairly major strategic planning. And we basically are re have rethought who we are. So for 60 years, we've been a cultural institution in the city of Vancouver, an aquarium in Stanley Park, with a rich mixture of education, research, and conservation. Richer than most aquariums in the world, and that's one of the things that has has gained the aquarium the stature of being one of the top three aquariums in the world. All focused on conservation. But we're going to move on Ocean Day, June 8th. The Vancouver Aquarium itself in Stanley Park will always be the Vancouver Aquarium. The organization will change its name because it has been changing its focus over the last five years. So moving more and more to becoming a global leader in conservation. Um, and yes, we're going to keep doing some research. And part of our engagement is expanded education. We will continue to operate the Vancouver Aquarium because we see when we get four hours with 1.7 million people, if we can't get light that little flicker of interest and curiosity in four hours, heaven help us. Uh, we also co-manage Europe's largest aquarium in Valencia, Spain. And we were asked to do that by the government um, because it was being run as a tourist attraction. 
and they looked at us and they said, How, you guys can break even. They're, they're a tourist attraction, they break even, but they have no education or community benefit. You guys managed to break even, but you're spending millions on education and research. Can you do that here? And so we are. We have a 15-year contract uh, to co-manage that aquarium. But the majority of our focus going forward in the next 60 years is more and more public engagement. It's having conversations with as many people as we can in person and digitally. So we saw 1.17 million people in Stanley Park last year and 1.5 million people in the aquarium in Spain, but we saw 58 million people digitally last year. And that's on a track to be 100 million by 2020 and a billion by 2025. So part of the organization is basically now a, a communication startup. And what do we have in Vancouver? We have an awful lot of, of those kinds of companies, uh, digital um, content-based organizations that we can draw on for help. So as I say, the, the name will change in part because to work collaboratively around the world, you can't work with everything labeled Vancouver, which implies a certain region of the world, and Aquarium, because that, that people's mental picture is, oh, a building full of fish tanks that I go visit. So I can't tell you what the name is, but stay tuned on June 8th, uh, you'll, you'll find out. So the goal, as I said, is increase our impact on ocean conservation, and by 80%, that work is by getting more and more people interested, aware, curious, and helping people take that first step of deciding to do something. It might be just making the decision to buy ocean-wise seafood. It might be the decision to take better care of how you dispose of plastics to make sure they get recycled. Um, and there are many ways that each of us can take a little step to help. And collectively, I mean, each of us is like a grain of sand on a beach, right? There are billions of grains of sand on the beach. Well, there are billions of people on Earth that we need to get engaged. So with that, um, I will say a couple of words about the park board and then, and then answer questions. So the aquarium was on a pathway, is on a pathway, um, of revitalizing its physical facilities. So you get to be 60 years old, I mean, humans go off to the eye doctor and the dentist, or maybe a knee replacement. Aquariums, that's concrete with steel in it, soaked in seawater for 30, 40 years. What happens is there's often not a lot of steel left. That's not a great thing in an earthquake zone. So we're on a, a planned process to rebuild the aquarium piece by piece uh, while it stays open and financially healthy and engaging people. And that plan was developed with the Parks Board. They granted the land, the expansion land, in 2006 to do that. They rewrote the what everybody calls the lease, but we, we sit on that land in Stanley Park under a license to occupy, is the technical term. They extended that to the end of 2029, so basically January 1st, 2030. Um, it was approved by the City and the Parks Board and a development permit granted. We completed the first phase of that, opening it in 2014, and the phase we were about to start construction on in September is a new Canada's Arctic. 
which would have provided a, a pool system for beluga whales three times the size of what they had, plus all kinds of new interactive displays to engage people. So we have to take care of both. I mean, our first concern is the health and welfare of our animals, but they're there to engage people uh, and help try and turn the tide of, of our human impact in the oceans. So with the passing, uh, the death of the two belugas in, in November and early December, um, were it not for the politics, um, that was a tragedy. And there are still people in the aquarium who aren't over it. Um, those people who take care of those animals spend more time with them than they spend with their kids at home. It, it's, there's a, an incredible bond that develops. Um, so we would have gone on, but now politics has intervened. And so the park board, apparently on May 15th, they, they, they say that the bylaw is all done, but they're not sharing it with anybody, will totally ban whales and dolphins from Stanley Park. And that includes animals like Chester that have been rescued but can't go back to the wild. So it's become a political argument as much as anything. Um, and you know, the old saying, all politics is local, is certainly is true. Um, so our hope, we made a compromise proposal to the park board that we want to go ahead and build the Arctic and take the, the 13 years between now and the end of 2029 to, to if phase out cetaceans if that's what the community wants. Uh, our polling doesn't show that's what the community wants. The community, the polling we've done shows by 86% people support the rescue program and support providing a home for those rescued animals that for whatever reason can't go back and live in nature. The support, the direct support for keeping cetacean is in the 60s percent. Um, but the park board, it's one of the several things, uh, the two or three things that have, that I find repugnant about the process are that during their hearings, um, the, the trashing of, of young people with passion. So we don't tell any of our staff to go talk or don't, we don't even ask them. But the young people who took their time to go to the parks board table and tell them why they thought these animals are so important just literally got shredded by some various survey and, and cynical park board commissioners. They are politicians. Um, and I found that reprehensible. I don't, we're trying to light flames of interest and curiosity and passion in people, not, not put them out. Um, and the park board says, we, think, we know what the public wants, but there's been no polling, no consultation, except for two nights of public hearings, which were kind of a bit of a rigged process. So um, uh, as, of, as of Thursday, we said, okay, we, we're not getting anywhere with the park board. We set up meetings. We tried to find a pathway. We made a compromise proposal uh, that would see cetaceans out of Vancouver by 2030. Um, they said, no, it has to happen right now. Well, the outcomes are, are that it will end the rescue of cetaceans because there's no place to put them. We're the only home for unreleasable ones in Canada. And you don't know when you rescue one whether it's going it's to be able to go back to nature, which is always the first goal. But sometimes they can't. And um, so there won't be any rescue. Um, there, are, there will be 
there are significant economic impacts, and that will come right to the taxpayers of Vancouver, because we were plowing ahead with a legal contract on a plan, and there's well north of $10 million already been spent, which is now wasted, um, in, in, if that goes ahead. And there are impacts on our programs, because the aquarium pays for all of that education, research, and conservation from front door proceeds. And if attendance goes down, because there are no more whales and dolphins, and that is part of marketing, if that, if that happens, then the only thing you can do, you can't stop paying your electrical bill, you can't stop feeding the sea otters, all you can do is, if you have to cut, it'll be the, the mission side programs that the community really values that will have to be cut. Well, I'll just finish by saying, you know, I've, I've been involved in nature my whole life. I grew up in a small town in a time when, when kids, I mean, you'd just say, bye, Mom, on Saturday, and you'd be out in the hills behind town. And she just had faith, I guess, it would show back up at dinner time when we were hungry. Um, you could do that then. Things have changed now, even in that town. But I always just thought that that, that sort of sparked my interest in, in nature. And going through that, going through those, um, that first Earth Day, it, it brought home to me how much or how quickly the world's changing. So I would prefer to live in a world where we don't need places like the Vancouver Aquarium uh, or zoos. I, but unfortunately, things are getting worse for nature, not better. And I don't, it, you can learn a lot from a video. Mostly what you learn are facts or, or, or um, what's the word I'm searching for, intellectual information. Often the passion or the, the direct connection comes from what educators now call experiential learning. So the idea, and, and, and uh, they use, the, the paper I was just reading, used cooking as an example. If you're going to try and teach a bunch of kids to cook, don't just show them videos. You actually have to take them to the kitchen and, and learn how to cook and how you turn the stove on and off. You watch all the videos you want. And if you want kids to enjoy cooking and to become part of them, that's something they'll do and enjoy their whole life, you better have not only take them to the kitchen, you better take them to the kitchen with somebody who's got some passion and can help kindle that passion. It's the same for, for love of nature. And that's really what the aquarium has always been about for 61 years and would hope to be about for the next 61. And I'll stop talking. <laughs>